This morning, I invite you to take your Bible and turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. This morning, I want to speak to you on our true identity. Confusion on this matter brings chaos in every arena of life. If you don't know who you are, then chances are you do not know why you're here, where you're going, or how to interact one with the other. This is a fundamental question as to our human existence. This morning we talk about true identity. Ephesians chapter 2, I'll begin at verse 11. Once you find your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Therefore, remember that formerly, you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised, by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in his one body... To reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is the word of the Lord and thanks be to God. You may be seated. This morning, I want to frame our conversation around three phrases that we find in the biblical passage. You were, but now, you are. You were is found in verse 12. But now is found in verse 13. You are is told to us in verse 19. I cannot overemphasize the depth of division that existed within the first century church, between Jews and Gentiles. They had been taught all their life to have and hold mutual hostility one for the other. Jews were taught that the reason God made Gentiles was so that hell would have wood to burn. In fact, if a Jewish man ever married a Gentile woman, 
The Jewish man's family would literally hold a funeral for him because from that day forward, he would be dead to them. If a Gentile woman was struggling in delivering a baby, every Jewish midwife was instructed, do not help that Gentile woman because you don't want to be responsible for bringing in a Gentile into this world. There was a deep level of animosity, frustration, bitterness, hostility between Jews and Gentiles, and it was reciprocated from Gentiles to Jews. It was even hotly debated in the early church. Can a Gentile come to faith in Christ? If a Gentile can come to faith in Christ, there were many who would argue, well, certainly he must first become a Jew before he become a Christian. So that there were many who would argue that every male had to be circumcised. Every person who came to faith in Christ would have to subject himself or herself to the dietary laws and the religious regulations of the Mosaic Covenant. This was hotly debated in the first century. The first church council that ever existed is called the Jerusalem Council, and it is recorded for us in Acts chapter 15. And this is the question that's on the hearts and minds of everybody. Can a barbaric Gentile actually become a Christian? And if he can become a Christian, don't we think he must first become a Jew? After much conversation... Luke says in Acts, after much conversation, it's Peter who stands up and he says, brothers, we know that we have been saved by grace and so have they. It is Paul and Barnabas who stand up. After going on missionary journeys, they give testimony after testimony of how Gentile individuals had come to genuine faith in Christ, demonstrated fruit of repentance and obedience. It's James, the brother of our Lord, the leader of the Jerusalem church, who stands up and says, brothers, we should not make it difficult for Gentiles to turn to God. They concluded accurately so, that at the end of the Jerusalem council, they declared God shows no favoritism. He accepts men and women from every nation who fear him and do what is right. We are beneficiaries of that proclamation. We are beneficiaries of that declaration that yes, even a barbaric Gentile like me, even a barbaric Gentile like you can come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit of God and be welcomed into the family of God. We are here today because that conversation took place and that decision was made. But even though it was made in the first century, there were still a lot of churches that struggled with that. A case in point is the church at Ephesus. This church struggled. We could call it First Baptist Church of Ephesus. They struggled as to who can be part of our membership. Certainly there were those who had come to Christ by Jewish birth. They were there in Ephesus. There were other individuals who came to faith in Christ and they had a Gentile experience. They were all there at the church in Ephesus. And even though the proclamation had been given, 
that anyone can come to Christ through faith, there was still a lot of animosity. So that the local church in Ephesus resulted her, uh, reduced herself down to name-calling. Within the body of Christ, they formed cliques. Within the body of Christ, they formed divisions, segregations. Within the body of Christ, they started calling each other names. The believers who were of Jewish descent, they proudly called themselves the circumcision. We are the circumcision group. And they negatively spoke of the Gentile believers as the uncircumcised. I realize that we nickname people that either we really love or we really hate. And whenever you idolize, inevitably you demonize. For example, if you idolize your race, you will demonize another race. If you idolize your gender, you will demonize the other gender. If you idolize your political party, then you will demonize another political party. If you idolize your children, then you'll demonize other children. If you idolize your spiritual depth, then you'll demonize those who don't have your spiritual depth. If you idolize the fan base of your favorite team, then you'll demonize the fan base of that other team. Whenever you idolize something, inevitably you demonize something. We give nicknames, we uh, call names to people that we either really, really love or we really, really hate. And here in Ephesus, they resulted in name-calling. We are the circumcised. You are the uncircumcised. We are more spiritual. You are barbarian. We are closer to God. You barely got in. Name-calling, division, cliques. I marvel at the things in which we take pride, those things that cause divisions within the body of Christ. In John chapter 8, Jesus was confronted by the Jewish establishment of his day. They were asking him questions like, who are you? Where'd you come from? Who is your father? And then they very arrogantly and proudly said, we are children of Abraham. And Jesus corrected them. He said, you do not have Abraham as your father. You have the father of lies, the devil himself, as your father. You are children of the devil. The reason you don't believe upon me is because you are not the people of God. Do I have to tell you that they didn't take to that very kindly? They didn't like that declaration because they had taken pride in the fact that they had a spiritual lineage, a, a religious pedigree that traced themselves all the way back to Father Abraham and they could prove it because they had circumcision. You and I would agree that Abraham was a good man, but he is not a moral giant. If I did half the things Abraham did, I would be known as that guy who used to pastor First Baptist Church Pelham. <laughs> Let me give you just a couple examples. Not once but twice, Abraham prostituted his wife. They went into a region and Abraham said, darling, you're so pretty. 
that if they know that you're my wife, they will kill me. So let's just say you're my sister and they can have their way with you. Abraham suggested this and his wife agreed to it. Not once, but twice. And then on another occasion, Abraham takes his beloved son, goes up on the mountain, and tries to kill him. When the reporter catches up with Abraham and says, Abraham, why did you do that? Abraham simply said, because God told me to. I'm telling you, if I did half of those things, I would be in the unemployment line. I may even be in the cemetery if I did any of those kind of things. Yet, Abraham was exonerated as a moral giant. And they said, we are children of Abraham. We have the mark of circumcision upon ourselves. And certainly, if we accurately read the record, we discover that Abraham is saved not because of circumcision, but because of faith. He's saved because he believed in God. Genesis chapter 15, Abraham believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. Genesis chapter 17 is when God gives the sign of the covenant through circumcision. I realize that's only two chapters of scripture space from Genesis 15 to Genesis 17, but it took 13 years to live between Genesis 15 and Genesis 17. So for more than a dozen years, Abraham was saved because of his faith in God. And then 13 years later, God gave him the sign of his selection of circumcision for himself and for all the men in his household. Do you know why? Abraham's descendants were picked to be used of God. It was not because of divine preferential treatment. It was because they had a job to do. Theirs was a show and tell ministry. The children of Israel were to show the world what it looks like to be the people of God. They were to tell the world who God is and how to know him personally. That's the job that the descendants of Abraham had. Check this out. Abraham's testimony goes something like this. Abraham would have to confess to you, at one time I was a pagan. At one time I was a Gentile. I was a barbarian, but God sovereignly selected me and I responded to him in genuine faith and I lived my life striving to be obedient unto him. And when I messed up, I would go to him and ask a uh, confession of sin. He would forgive me by his grace. That's the story of Abraham. I wonder, church, does that sound like your story or does it sound like my story? And the answer is absolutely yes, because I was a pagan, sovereignly selected by God. I responded by my faith. I live my life striving to be obedient to the word and will of God. And when I mess up, and I do every day, when I mess up, I go to him and by his grace, he forgives me. That's my story. That's your story. That's Abraham's story. So the children of Abraham had a show and tell ministry. You show the world how it is to live as people of God. You tell the world who God is and how to know him. They failed to do their job. They did not do their task. Instead of showing the world how to live as a people of God, they showed the world how they could look just like the world. Instead of telling the world about God, they built up barriers to keep the world away from God. They did not do their job. God sent prophet after prophet, warning them, reminding them of their show and tell ministry, but they killed all the prophets. Jesus came. The church was called out. Do you know why we exist? It is not 
for divine preferential treatment. We exist as church because we have a show-and-tell ministry. We are to show the world how to live as God's people. And we're to tell the world who God is and how to know him. That's why we exist. So because of that, there ought not to be any man-made divisions and cliques and groupings in the body of Christ. Because we have a job to do. We have been called of God. We have been told, go tell the world who God is and show them how you must live uh, unto the Lord as the people of God. So what Paul does in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 11 and 12 is he reminds the church, this is who you were. Because I've discovered that in order for me to know my true identity, I've got to go backwards just a bit. I've got to recall who I was. You have to recall who you were. So Paul says, verse 12, remember, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship, foreigners to the covenant, without hope, without God in the world. Church, do you remember what you were like before Christ? Do you remember who you were? Stillborn before the Lord, dead in your sin. You navigated life in very selfish ways. You did what you wanted, when you wanted to do it, and how you wanted to do it. You lived without hope. You lived without direction. You lived without real divine purpose. You lived without God. You remember what it was like before Christ. You and I, in order to know our true identity, we must always remember who you were. You must remember who you were. Because before Christ, you were dead in your sins. Before Christ, you were alienated, excluded from God, without any shred of hope. Now, the reason we're to remember who we were is not to bring up self-hatred. It's not to bring up sadness over sin. It's to remind us of the goodness and greatness of God. You remember who you were because you remember where you came from. You remember how God has rescued you. You remember the divine rescue mission that God came and he searched right after you and he pulled you up out of that miry pit and he set your feet firmly upon the rock of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, you remember who you were. You know what happens sometimes? I fear that sometimes we've been in church too long. Now hear me out before you begin to throw tomatoes and throw rocks. Because I am a churchman. I was raised in church. I love the church. I'm a pastor of a church. I love the church. But I fear that sometimes people are too churched. Because if you're in church too long, it's possible for you to develop skeletal amnesia. You forget the skeletons that were in your closet. You forget the sin that was in your past. And if you're not careful, if you're in church too long, what can happen is you can begin to think that this place exists to meet your needs and your greeds. If you're not careful, you can lose your outward focus and become very inward and self-absorbed. Kind of let you in on a little secret. 
The reason why we talk on nearly a weekly basis about making disciples of Christ, the reason I mention to you those three questions on a regular basis of what, where, who, what are you learning, where are you taking the gospel, who are you trying to reach, the reason we show those videos uh, on a routine basis of, of various mission trips and places that you can go and people have gone and the work that's being done, the reason we do all of that is so that we will maintain an outward focus because the last thing I want is for any church that I pastor to become inward and self-absorbed. Whenever a church becomes inward and self-absorbed, what that means is they've been churched too long. Because it's possible if you've been in church too long, if you become too self-absorbed, that you can begin to worship the things of God instead of the God of things. It's possible for you to become more enamored with the blessings of God instead of the God of the blessings. And when you're churched too long, divisions, groups, cliques can form. Not outside the church, inside the church, inside the body. And they can begin to push their own personalized agenda. And if you listen to the language very carefully, the language will be littered with vocabulary of us versus them. And it's inside the church, not outside the church, inside the church, us versus them. So you may have heard it from time to time before. The us versus them being young people versus old people. Well, if those young people would just do what we were supposed to do, we do what they're supposed to do, then everything would be okay. Well, if those old people would stop acting old, then everything would be all right. Us versus them. Sometimes it can be leadership versus laity. People can say, well, if, 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 if us deacons, if, if the church would actually do what we tell them to do, then all would do well. And the laity says, well, if deacons would get off their keister, then everything would be fine, right? Us versus them. It can also be newcomers versus old-timers. Oh, there's so many new people in the church, they're trying to change everything. Well, there's so many people that have been here forever, there's no way that anything could be changed. Us versus them. You listen very carefully, and you can begin to hear within the body of Christ conversations that's laced with vocabulary of us versus them. Whenever that happens, my friends, we need to remind ourselves that means we're not acting out of our true identity. We're acting out of who we were before Christ. This is why Paul brings all this to their attention. This is who you were. As I read the Bible, there's really only one division that matters to God. And here it is. Whether people are in Christ or outside of Christ. That's the only line of demarcation. It's not young versus old. It's not us versus them. It's not leadership versus laity. It's not newcomers versus old timers. It's not any uh, part and parcel way that we divide up the body of Christ. It's, hey, are you in Christ or are you outside of Christ? That's the only division in the church. So because of that, Paul gets to verse 13 and he says, but now you who were once far away have been brought near unto Christ. Listen to what God did. You were a dreaded sinner. You were stillborn before the Lord. You were dead in your sin. But now, God has brought you close through the blood of Christ. But now, you're saved. But now, 
You're raised from the dead, but now you're seated in the heavenlies, but now you have purpose in life, but now you have meaning, but now you have hope, but now you have God, but now is a game changer, but now God has brought you who were once far away near unto him through the blood of Christ. So at verse 14, Jesus is our peace. Jesus is our peace. And he came to destroy every barrier. Paul describes it in Ephesians 2.15 as the wall of hostility. Jesus came to destroy the wall of hostility. You say, what does that mean? This is a beautiful picture that Paul writes. It's a glorious analogy because everybody knew that in Jerusalem, around the temple, there was a 37-foot tall wall that was constructed to keep the Gentiles out. And in fact, around the temple, there were 13 slab signs that were engraved, and everyone said, beware, in essence. Beware, Gentiles. For any foreigner who goes beyond this point and is caught only has himself to blame for his subsequent death. Oh, that's pretty serious, don't you think? What they're saying is, this is as far as you can come because you are a Gentile. It is a wall that was built up, a barrier, a division, a clique, a group. Now, it's true that there was the Holy of Holies, and, and beyond that, there were various courts for, for the priest and for Jewish men and for Jewish women and for Jewish dogs and Jewish cats and Jewish goldfish. I mean, they had every provision for everything Jewish. And then on the furthest outskirt part, furthest away from the Holy of Holies, then there's the court of the Gentiles. You can come in, but you can only come in so far. Don't even think that you're going to get close to God. Because you can't get past this place. You cannot get past this barrier. And if you're a Gentile who came to Jerusalem and wanted to go to the temple to worship, you were always reminded that you were a foreigner. Always reminded. In fact, if you went past a certain point, you would be killed. The Apostle Paul will be arrested because he takes, or it was rumored, that he took a foreigner, a Gentile, an Ephesian Gentile by the name of Trophimus. They believed and they rumored that Paul took Trophimus beyond that barrier and took him into the Jewish section. And they arrested Paul simply based on that rumor. This was serious stuff. What Paul writes is, in Christ, every barrier has been destroyed. The wall of hostility has been torn down. What wall is he talking about in a spiritual sense? He's talking about the wall between God and man. Because you know that because of sin, you're an object of God's wrath. You are uh, justifiably deserving of holy hostility that God has against you and against me. Because we are sinners, we deserve an eternity's worth of punishment in a very real place called hell. Because of our defiant disobedience, yet in Christ, Jesus paid it all. And all to him I owe. Sin left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. And Jesus is our substitute. He died in our place to the point that he declares it is finished. The ransom's been paid. Everything is paid in full. So now there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What is that? One by one, the wall is coming down. The wall of hostility between God and humanity has been destroyed in Jesus Christ. But what else does that mean? 
It also means any wall and division within the people of God has been destroyed. So that you and I can be one with each other just as we are one with God and God is one with us. So that when we realize that we have a show and tell ministry and the lost world comes in and they see the church in all of its diversity, they ask the question, how can this diverse church get along with each other? I mean, you got white people and black people. You got tall people and short people. You got fat people and skinny people. You've got funny people and not so funny people. You've got uh, smart people and uneducated people. I mean, you've got uh, Auburn people. You got Alabama people. You got him only people. You got praise chorus people. You got all kinds of people. Yet, how in the world can all these people get along? The answer is because we are in Christ and Christ has destroyed every wall of hostility that would divide us and tear us asunder. This is who God is. And so Paul is saying to the Ephesians, there's no need for cliques and divisions and groupings within the body of Christ because he is our peace and he has destroyed every wall of hostility. So then in verse 15, the purpose of Jesus was to create a new man. The word new is not new like a car fresh off the showroom floor. It's new in kind and quality. It, it's brand new. Jesus came to make a new people of God. He came to do something brand new, not just to refurbish something, but to do something brand new. So that it is ridiculous for us to talk about an American Christian or an Asian Christian or a white Christian or a black Christian or a rich Christian or a poor Christian. We are solely and sufficiently Christian because we are in Christ so that whenever you meet anybody who is a genuine brother or sister in the Lord, whether it's here in town, halfway around the world, you have more in common with that brother or sister than the own family members that you have that sit across from you at Thanksgiving and they're lost as a duck. You have more in common with a brother or sister in Christ that you've never met before. Why? Because Christ has made us a new family of God. So verse 18, Paul says, so through him you have access to the Father by his one spirit. What a beautiful Trinitarian statement. Through him being Jesus, you have access to the Father by his one spirit. What's he saying? He's saying the only, one, only way and any way that anyone and everyone can come to God is through him, Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit. The only way anybody gets to God is through Jesus. Through him, we have access to the Father by his spirit. In World War II, there were a few soldiers who had a fallen friend. They found themselves in France. They came up to a cemetery. They wanted to bury their fallen friend. They went to the church beside the cemetery, knocked on the door. A minister came out. Excuse us, sir. Uh, our soldier has died. We want to bury him. Can we bury him here in this cemetery? The minister was a Catholic priest. He asked the question, is he a Catholic? The American soldier said, no, he's not. The Catholic priest said, I'm sorry. He cannot be buried here. 
This is the Catholic Church. This is the Catholic Cemetery. Only Catholic individuals can be buried here. The American soldiers did the only thing they could do. They went outside of the cemetery, beyond the fence, and they buried their friend. The next morning they came back. They wanted to pay their final respects before they moved on to their next assignment. And when they got there, they could not find the grave. They looked around. They knew exactly where they had gone. They knew where they had dug up the earth. They were looking and they could not find any ground that was disturbed. They, they could not find it at all. After a few moments, they went to that church that was beside the cemetery. They knocked on the door. The Catholic priest came to the door. Excuse me, sir, do you remember us from yesterday? We came to bury our friend. We came today to pay our final respects. We can't find his grave. Do you know the whereabouts? And the priest said, yes. Yes, I do. He said, last night, halfway through the night, I, I couldn't sleep. I felt so sorry for what I told you. So the second half of last night, I went out and I moved the fence to include your friend. Church, do you know what Jesus did when he came and died on the cross? He came and moved the fence so that you could be included in the family of God. Jesus came and moved the fence to include you, to include me, to include anyone that would come to him in a desire to go to the Father through Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, don't misunderstand Paul and don't misunderstand me. We are not saying that somehow Paul is reducing humanity down to its lowest common denominator, saying anybody and everybody, you come on your own terms. It doesn't matter how you live or what you do. You can just come. Paul is not a universalist. He is not saying that Jesus came to uh, uh, move the fence just to include everybody, whoever wants to come. Listen, church, let me tell you, labels matter little. Lifestyle matters much. Paul is not concerned about the labels that we tag on each other. He is concerned about the lifestyle and the morality of God that's demonstrated in our lives so that he will write in this very letter, chapter 5, but among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says something very similar. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral. Can I stop right there just for a second? Has it dawned on you yet that every time in the scripture that a list of sins is, is, is given, that sexual sin tops the chart? Have you ever thought, why? Why is that? Maybe because it's so prominent and prevalent in the first century and in the 21st century. It's just a guess. It's just a holy hunch. But maybe that's why, because God knows this is what trips up a lot of people, including the people of God. It's just a suggestion. I don't know. Maybe I'm way off base. But anyway, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But 
you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Church, listen, I may not be all that I ought to be, but praise God, I'm not what I used to be. You may not be all that you ought to be, but praise God, you're not what you used to be. You remember you were, but you also remember, but now, but now God, who has brought you near to him, you were once far from the Lord, but he's brought you near through the blood of Christ because our identity, our true identity, is that we are in Christ so you were dead in sin but now in Christ so you are verses 19 to 22 consequently Paul writes you are he gives three portraits you are citizens in God's kingdom You are members of God's family. You are bricks in God's temple. Three pictures, three glorious analogies. Because of who God is and what he has done for us in Christ Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit, you are citizens in God's kingdom. You do realize that as Christians, we're just passing through. This world is not our home. We are here just for a few short years, 70, 80, 90 years, and then we go to heaven for eternity. Our time here pales in comparison to what awaits us on the eternal shores. We are just passing through. This is not our home. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are servants of the Most High God. Make no mistake about it. Our allegiance is to Christ and Christ alone. He is the king of all kings. He is the Lord of all lords. He is the ruler of his kingdom. His jurisdiction has no end. He is a ruler who cannot be elected. He is a ruler who cannot be impeached. I'm not exactly sure about his political persuasion, but this much I know is true. His policies are just and accurate and true, both now and forevermore. He is the king of all kings and we are allegiant to him now don't misunderstand as christians we ought to be the best citizens on the planet we are patriotic nothing wrong with that we love our schools we cherish our communities Uh, We take pride in in the places which we live. Uh, We try to do good. That's nothing wrong with that. But our home is not here. Our home is in heaven. Paul says, you are a citizen in God's kingdom. Not only that, but you are members in God's family. I realize that some of you have had a horrible family life. And hear me when I say this, I I am so, so sorry that your experience was filled with pain and and terrible things, and and I, I am sorry for that. But can you also hear me when I say there is nothing more beautiful than the family by God's design? God instituted this thing called family. He created it so that when we come to him, we call him father. He calls us sons and daughters. We call each other brothers and sisters in Christ because we're siblings in the Lord. We treat each other as family. 
as a family loves and protects, so we love and protect one another. To the men that are older than us, we treat them with the utmost respect and loyalty that we would treat our dads and our granddads. To the men that are our peers about our same age, we treat them as brothers. The, the kind of brother that we'll take a bullet for. The kind of brother that we're not going to let anybody bully on the playground. That kind of brother. Those boys that are younger than us, those men that are younger than us, we, we regard them with the same level of love that we regard to our own sons. And to the women in the church, those women that are older than us, we revere them, we hold them up, elevate them with the same level of respect that we do to our mom or to our grandmothers. To those ladies that are our peers about our same age, uh, Paul says to Timothy, you treat them as sisters with absolute purity. Those women that are younger than us, we treat them as if they were our own darling daughters. We love them with the love that a father has for his daughter. That's how we treat each other because we are family. Now, we're not plastic people. We don't always have it all together. We don't have all these. We're not perfect. And nobody in here claims perfection. But we cut each other some slack. We give each other grace. We realize that we love one another as a holy family of God. This is a place that's a safe zone. It's safe in the family of God. We, we look out for each other. We love each other. This is a safe zone. It's a place where you can take your mask off. I always kind of chuckle at this. Whenever I'm at the grocery store or Walmart or even sometimes in the hospital, that I'll see somebody, and more times than not, it, this comes from a woman versus a man, but, but the woman will be there, let's say, at the grocery store or at Walmart, and maybe she didn't have on all of her makeup or she has on a ball cap, and she bumps into me and she's, oh, pastor, I'm so sorry you had to see me like this. And I think to myself, why? Why? I mean, you did come to Walmart. I mean, it's, chances are you're going to bump into somebody, right? I mean, so I'm like, why? I mean, it's, it's not a big deal. I mean, you look fine. You're, you're my sister in the Lord. And, and, and I marvel at that. You're going to a hospital, a place where you expect to find sick people. It's so, my whole oh, pastor, I'm so sorry. You had to see me like this. Well, I mean, you just came out of surgery, big guy. I mean, you know, <laughs> I kind of anticipated that. It's okay. I love you. You're my brother in Christ. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not telling you next week uh, to come with no makeup on and stop putting on deodorant, stop brushing your teeth, you know. I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying, hey, listen, we're not plastic people. We're not perfect. We got it. We don't have it all together. This is a place where you can take your mask off because it's a safe zone. This is the family of God. The third analogy that Paul gives is, is probably the most beautiful. He spends the most time on it. He says, you are a brick in God's temple. This would have been an analogy that they would have completely understood. The landscape of Ephesus was littered with various temples. The building of a building in those days took an enormous amount of time. Everybody knew that in Jerusalem there was a great temple that had begun with Herod. And it actually began in 20 B.C., the temple in Jerusalem was not completed till after 60 AD. That's an 80-year project. 
When Paul writes this letter, the temple in Jerusalem was not completed yet. It was always under construction. What Paul is saying is that the temple of God is always under construction. Bricks are always being added. Stones are always being added. Since January of 2015, just in our little neck of the woods, just right here on this plot of land, God has added 383 bricks to this temple. 104 of them have come through the waters of baptism. That's a little better rate than one out of four. One out of four people that come are going through making a profession of faith and walking through the waters of baptism. 383 bricks have been added to this temple that we call First Baptist Church Pelham. And when we think about who we are, we've got about 1,500 bricks that claim this church as home. And let's just be honest, we got some weird bricks. Just look around. We got some weird bricks, but every building has weird bricks. In fact, I've been told that it's the weird bricks that give the building its character. So some of you are here and you're a weird brick, but you're here to give character to this thing called the temple of God. And I praise the Lord that all of us are here. Paul says, if you look around, we are the bricks to the temple of the Lord. But don't stare at the bricks. Look at the chief cornerstone. Don't look at the bricks. If you look at the bricks, then you'll look at how they're all different and weird and bizarre. No, look at the cornerstone. Paul says that Jesus himself is the chief cornerstone. A cornerstone was the largest, the first stone that was established. It it brought stability and symmetry to the building. In those days, stones had to be cut by hand, so you can imagine all of the potential cornerstones that were thrown aside because they were not perfect. A cornerstone had to be perfect at the bottom to ensure a sure foundation, had to be perfect on the sides so it'd be perpendicular to the ground, had to be perfect on top so that one stone upon the other would not construct a building that swayed one way and leaned the other. It had to be a perfect cornerstone. Paul says Jesus is that cornerstone. Perfect in every way. Archaeologists have uncovered some of the massive foundational stones of the temple. In fact, uh, I've been told that if you go to Israel, you can walk and, and you can see some of those massive stones. I, I read that, that some archaeologists have uncovered a s- stones that are 55 feet long, 11 feet tall, 14 feet wide, 570 tons in weight. And Paul says, don't look at the bricks. Look at the cornerstone. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. You build your life on Him, everything will line up. You build your life on Him, everything will line up. So my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and His righteousness. And I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but I wholly lean on Jesus' name, on Christ, the solid rock I stand. All of the ground is sinking sand. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All of the ground is sinking sand. He is the chief cornerstone. This morning is a message about identity. Who are you? Who are you? I can tell you that I am in Christ and he is my cornerstone. I am in Christ, and he is my cornerstone. 
I have to remember who I was. But now, God has brought me near so that I am in Christ. And He is my cornerstone. Heavenly Father, we bow before You. We give You this invitation, Lord, if there's anyone here who's building life on something other than Christ, I pray that today that You'll remind them that You are the perfect cornerstone. And Lord Jesus, I pray that... um, That in this very moment, if somebody is moved by you, help them to come in faith and obedience to accept you as Savior and Lord. Lord, for those of us who are in Christ, help us, dear God, to realize that every wall of hostility has been destroyed and we are one in Christ. Lord, if you're moving to add more bricks to this church, Lord, bring them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.